What are the dynamics shaping the role of immigrant churches in the United States? Dr. Joao Chavez is the Assistant Director for Programming at the Hispanic Theological Initiative and author of Migrational Religion, Context and Creativity in the Latinx Diaspora. Dr. Chavez graduated with a Master's of Theological Studies from George W. Truett Theological Seminary and received his PhD in religion from Baylor University. He has presented and published his research broadly, both in English and Portuguese. Joao has served as the unit chair for Latinx religions at the American Academy of Religion Southwest Region since 2018, and is currently a member of the Commission on Racial, Gender, and Economic Justice of the Baptist World Alliance. In this episode, I speak with Joao about his book and work, and focus on his case study of a network of Brazilian immigrants who established a unique ethnic association within their host country. With me, he explores his extensive ethnographic research done over six years in 11 congregations across the United States. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Well, first, Dr. Chavez, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, I'm grateful for this interview, grateful for your time, um, and excited about this work, your work, this is work that is completely new and unique. We have never talked about this um, on the distillery before. So I, what, I, what I really love about it is how unique and how interesting and, and how vibrant this, this work, your work is. So thank you first and foremost for being here. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I've been following the podcast and I'm just honored to be a, a part of such a meaningful uh, and uh, and wonderful, innovative work that you've been doing here in the podcast. And I mean, again, I'm just thrilled for our talk. I feel like this work is very personal in some ways. So I have a lot of questions, but I did want to just talk about any background story that you could share with us, like your personal story that led you to this work. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, I, I, I begin uh, the book uh, with, with my own story as, a, as an immigrant, particularly as an immigrant from Brazil, um, just landing in the U.S. without a, a community or a, uh, or a network that, uh, you know, could open doors for opportunities, for friendships, and for just, you know, an, an imagination of, uh, of a future in community. I mean, I, when I came, I did not have that. Uh, I had a few friends that I knew, uh, but beyond that, uh, not, not not a very robust kind of social network. And it was my involvement with an immigrant church in Florida um, that I kind of began having you know, church life. Of course, I, I was um, already a Christian in Brazil, but coming in here in the U.S., I found out how different uh, the, the immigrant church was. It was a, a church comprised mostly of Brazilian immigrants, most of them undocumented, uh, and via my uh, relationship with that church, and then with other churches that I uh, that I got to participate in different cities and in different states as I moved uh, for different reasons, um, I got to really see, you know, how uh, different from a church in our, our host country, the immig immigrant church was. And as I began to read more and learn more about other immigrant communities as well, especially other uh, ethnic churches, I got to see many overlaps 
and also uh, many differences between uh, different ethnic groups. Uh, and the, the, the interest I had uh, particularly uh, was in paying attention to how the migration process and migration dynamics change immigrant faith communities here. Because again, in my own experience in immigrant churches in the U.S., uh, over time, I saw how uh, those uh, those dynamics uh, made the immigrant church something almost sui generis, not necessarily uh, what the church is in the host country of uh, of folks who go to immigrants who go to church in the U.S., but also not the same kind of uh, of entity, if I could put it that way, as uh, national churches. You know, so is that liminal space and and that uh, that the immigrant church inhabits, as I try to show in the book. Uh, that I was interested in, uh, in kind of really looking at what are the elements that make that uh, uh, that make that happen. So, uh, so, and, and this was my attempt to kind of account for that. This book was. So, set the stage for us by telling us a little bit more about the history of the Brazilian Baptist Church and how Brazuca Baptist churches originated. Well, it could be a fairly surprising story in some ways. So, and it connects to the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention begins in the U.S. in 1845 uh, because of an issue regarding slavery, uh, and uh, and and it attempts uh, in the 50s, in the 1850s, they talk about Brazil as uh, you know being a potential mission field. They end up sending. A, a missionary who was formerly in Nigeria uh, to uh, to Brazil uh, in the in, in in 1860. When the missionary gets there, he speaks Yoruba, so he can preach to the slaves, but he can't preach to the you know the free population. So uh, he gets in trouble for uh, for you know preaching to the slaves, and the authorities think that he's trying to kind of uh, Organized legs for a rebellion that gets that and a few other things get him into trouble. He ends up going back to the coming back to the U.S. and then after the Civil War, in, in when the Civil War ends in 1865, there is a, a, an exodus of former Confederates to Brazil, uh, in large part because be, part because Brazil remains a slaveholding country until 1888. So 23 years after the end of the Civil War is when Brazil abolishes slavery. Uh, so is, it is among that exodus of, of Confederates or in communities, uh, ethnic communities, ethnic enclaves of former Confederates, that the first uh, Brazilian Baptist church, church, the two first Brazilian Baptist churches begin. Uh, and then it is from those churches uh, and it, they con their connections with the Southern Baptist Convention uh, that the, the work begins. Uh, to spread, um, and uh, and you know the churches start being formed, and the denomination begins to grow, uh, but but very much uh, for most of its history, it is a Southern Baptist dominated. And in the 1980s, uh, you know, fast forward almost a hundred years there, in the 1980s, um, a church in the Southern Baptist Church in the East Coast in New Jersey. Uh, in Newark, New Jersey, um, begins uh, having conversations with the, the, the World Mission Board of the Brazilian Baptist Convention about sending missionaries to preach to the Portuguese communities or the Iberian Portuguese communities in, 
in, in New Jersey. And that coincides with a broader uh, migration pattern that Baptists at that time, the Brazilian Baptists were not aware of, which was these mass migrations of these waves of mass migration uh, of Brazilians to the United States that happened in the 80s, in the 90s, and then in the early 2000s as well. Uh, so these missionaries began noticing uh, that, uh, you know, although initially the work was to reach the Iberian Portuguese, there are many Brazilian enclaves or more Brazilian immigrant enclaves, and I call them brazuca. Uh, just to differentiate between Brazilian and brazuca is a term that is already in the literature, in this, primarily among sociologists. It just, as, it just means Brazilian immigrant or Brazilian American in the U.S., uh, but again, then these churches begin to, you know, shift to focus mostly on uh, Brazilian immigrants. Although, in reality, uh, there are people from many nationalities that uh, that that go to these churches, uh, but they're, they they remain for most of their history mostly Brazilian, and they start to spread, uh, you know, across the U.S. And again, uh, the, the book traces uh, some of that history too. But that those are some of the main connections there. You know, a, a convention that starts uh, mostly informed by for, former Confederate exiles that go from the U.S. South to Brazil because they want to, as I say in the book, recreate the old South in a country uh, that still allows for slavery for another over two decades. Uh, and then again, after the as the story develops and migration patterns inform the way in which people move across the globe, that same connection with the Southern Baptist Convention kind of opened the doors for missionaries, Brazilian missionaries to be sent to the U.S. Uh, and then, uh, you know, begin uh, forming communities uh, that first tried to cater to Port Iberian Portuguese immigrants. But as mass migration from Brazil happens at the same time, they kind of shift towards a, a, a more um, concerted effort to reach Brazilian immigrants instead. And you know, I'm, I'm picking up on the importance of the missionaries in this. Can you, can you talk a little bit about who were these missionaries? The Southern Baptist missionaries that come to Brazil and then the Brazilian Baptists? Who are these people? Who, who were they? The, the missionaries who go to Brazil, they are you know, mostly, not exclusively, uh, but mostly Southern men and women uh, educated in the seminaries of the Southern Baptist Convention, um, who are, uh, you know, depending on how we use the terminology, of course, but I think, you know, according to most people, would fall within uh, the, uh, the, the, the terminology of evangelicals, uh, uh, meaning that they were, you know, conversionists, though they wanted people to, to, to convert there has not been much change in, in, in you know, in, a, in over a hundred years in what is considered to be Southern Baptist orthodoxy. You know, the, the inerrancy of scripture, uh, you know, the, uh, the baptism by immersion, you know, the, 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 the alleged uh, independence of the, local, of the local congregations. Those are all things that the missionaries brought with them. Uh, again, mostly Southern white men and women who, who went to Brazil throughout these years, and they pretty much shaped the denomination in Brazil in, 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 along similar lines. Uh, so they were really effective in uh, disseminating uh, Southern Baptist convictions, 
which for them was hard to separate from American, Southern American convictions. Uh, the 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 first president of the of the Mexican Baptist Convention of Texas, for example, uh, C.D. Daniel, Charles Daniel was his name. He went to Brazil as a as a young man, as a teenager, with the wave of Confederate exiles, uh, and so uh, became a missionary after that in Brazil. Then came to the U.S. because he spoke Portuguese. That was close enough to Spanish. Worked among Mexicans uh, and Mexican Americans in Texas in uh, doing several things. Uh, again, he started uh, the, uh, the the Mexican uh, the, the, the Mexican Convention Baptist Convention of Texas, and also translated Ku Klux Klan material into Spanish. Uh, you know, and so we have that kind of race religion uh, um, intersections there. But then the Brazilian missionaries who come in the eighties. Uh, specifically to plant churches here, uh, they are oft, more often than not trained in uh, in theological institutions in Brazil who have been dominated by Southern Baptist uh, missionaries who have uh, taught uh, Southern Baptist theology. Uh, and although they are Brazilians and, and, and they have been born and raised in Brazil, uh, theologically, they are very, very close, almost indistinguishable from U.S. Southern Baptists. I'm interested, too, in the kind of unique context of the Brazuca churches and how they differ from the Brazilian Baptist churches and the Southern Baptist Convention churches. Can you share a little bit and describe that context then? I think the major thing I would say, uh, and I, I devote one chapter of the book to that, is the amount of uh, or the percentage of undocumented immigrants in these churches that I are they I people who either were uh, or are undocumented. So this issue of uh, of uh, having to pastor undocumented folks is is one that brings a number a number of uh, of differences. Uh, from, of course, the, the, the Brazilian uh, context in which a lot of these missionaries or these pastors of Brazuca churches here had been pastors in Brazil, and they, and, and they mentioned these differences, you know, about just pastoring. They were not trained to pastor undocumented immigrants uh, who, you know, might need, uh, you know, a, a sort of communal uh, and legal and, um, and uh, a kind of a social network support. Uh, that uh, churches in, in Brazil uh, do not focus on necessarily or in ways in which uh, Southern Baptist uh, or national churches here in the U.S. in general do not need to do. And I mean, so, I mean, that's, that's, that's some of that uh, uh, kind of social dynamic that is heavily informed by immigration status. Pastors learn really quickly here um, that the draw for immigrant churches, or for brazuca churches particularly, but I think this is uh, it could be generalized, is not as much uh, you know theological conviction as is ethnic solidarity. That is, people go to a Brazilian Baptist church not because they are Baptist, but because they are Brazilian. I mean, it could be both, but the emphasis there is in ethnic solidarity rather than 
doctrinal, so doctrinal commitment. So what happens is that sometimes, and a lot of these Brazuca Baptist churches have are uh, are pioneers. They are the first church in their in the Brazilian church in their city or in their neighborhood, uh, and uh, because of that, you know, they draw folks from different uh, denominations in different religious backgrounds. But in terms of the internal dynamics, uh, you know, they are radically different in the sense that the denominational makeup of the members themselves is more often than not, one of the pastors I interviewed said, salada de fruta. You know, they're like a uh, fruit salad. And also, and this is particular uh, to the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, or at least uh, in some sense, uh, is the issue of women in leadership uh, that the Southern Baptist Convention has and continues to adamantly uh, kind of deny space for the ordination of women. Uh, of when I when I say in the book for 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 full gender equality in that sense, not to speak about other senses. And this this Brazuca churches for different reasons, um, you know, a couple of them already ordained women, and then here is the one point where the Brazilian Baptist Convention is different from the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, the Brazilian Baptist Convention uh, allows for the state or the state orders of pastors to recognize or not uh, women ordination, whereas the Southern Baptist Convention is a full-fledged no, we won't accept it. But even then, uh, you know, talking uh, with these pastors and following these churches for some time, you could see that... Uh, Migration patterns, uh, you know, and the Pentecostal influence uh, also inform the way in which they have come to uh, kind of uh, look at how they will adapt to their reality in terms of open space for food, gender equality. So those are uh, kind of the, the three main things um, that, that I would say make these churches unique. And again, uh, these are not unique to, to Brazuca churches. I think some of those elements can be um, you know, applied to a broader conceptual understanding of uh, some immigrant groups, but the amount, the, the number of undocumented immigrants, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that is ethnic solidarity rather than doctrinal conviction, that it is a strong, that gives a stronger sense of unity and belonging in these churches. And, uh, the Pentecostalization and all that comes with that um, is um, is what makes these communities different from, you know, the same denomination that the leaders of these communities belonged to before they left their their home country, and even the denomination to which these churches are uh, themselves affiliated in the U.S. That is the Southern Baptist Convention. So, talk to us about women in leadership. And any additional insight you have on how women who lead Brazuca Baptist churches navigate then their association with the Southern Baptist Convention? Like, how does that work? Well, I think first I should also say that leadership of women, it's not limited to in these churches, in Baptist churches, in Brazil, in the Southern Baptist Convention, you know, and whatever else, is not limited to this, to, to any denominations. Uh, willingness to accept their ordination, right? I mean, uh, I think women lead in churches. Uh, I think it's safe to say much more than men, either they ordain or not. And that's certainly true in, in Baptist churches in Latin America. It's true in immigrant churches here. I mean, and in, in, in many, many, many 
uh, you know, denominations that, again, uh, might accept or not uh, women ordination. First of all, lot, a lot of these women and men in these churches could care less if they are part of the Southern Baptist Convention, right? So uh, uh, many, many of them, are, like, I, like I mentioned a minute ago, are not Baptist, do not want to be Baptist, although they are members of a Baptist church. But the churches that have decided to ordain women that I did encounter, uh, it didn't seem that the fact that they were part of the Southern Baptist Convention created a major crisis. I did talk to a to a couple of pastors who say something that may illuminate part of the answer. One of them, uh, and I quote this pastor in the book, and I'm paraphrasing him here. He says, "You know, we respect the Baptist Convention or the Southern Baptist Convention. It is our big mama. He actually calls the Baptist Convention big mama. But uh, when we try to work with them, we have problems." The 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 uh, the other pastor, another pastor, went on and said, "You know." If they came here and saw the way we work, they will kick all of us out. Um, right? Well, meaning that that is recognition there that they they value that that connection. Uh, they are they are thankful for the fact that that connection exists. This partially because they are most of them are theologically conservative, but even those who who might be framed as being theologically conservative recognize that that they cannot act the same way. All right, and and, uh, and that uh, although they might act the way they act in ways that they don't advertise broadly, uh, you know, to uh, to their you know Southern Baptist uh, state conventions or even the national convention with whom convention with whom they cooperate, I didn't see major crises happening when they had to diverge uh, on 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 things, even the issue of. Uh, of ordination of women. You wrote about some of the pastors that you interviewed and worked with, their perspective on immigration changing. Can you describe some of that, the sort of the evolution of those pastors' perspectives? So I think that the the, the most powerful example is of one of the pastors who actually, when he came to the U.S. and find out that there were so many undocumented uh, members in his church, he actually called immigration. And uh, again, I mentioned this in the book, and he asked, you know, um, what, what, what can I do? Um, you know, uh, it, and, uh, and the immigration officer um, gave him a pastoral lesson. The immigration officer asked, what is in the sign in front of uh, your church? And the pastor said, well, it's the you know, first Baptist church of this place. And the immigration uh, officer told him, well, then pastor your people and let us deal with immigration issues. You don't have to get involved. And this pastor went from that to advocating for his uh, congregation to vote for Hillary Clinton, you know, because of what Donald Trump would do to immigrants. And I asked him, weren't you, weren't you fearful that you would lose your tax-exempt status? And he said, no, I would sacrifice anything for my people. And I show different examples of, uh, of pastors engaging with their communities, you know, in terms of uh, how they're reading scriptures, how they're looking about law. Uh, and that is a, a big shift from uh, equating uh, legality with morality, 
the pastors that I that I talk to anyway uh, make a sharp distinction between what is legal and what is right. And for them, yes, these people are uh, are uh, you know a lot of these people that come to the churches are illegal, but uh, that demonstrates not their immorality, but the immorality of the legislation system. To use uh, what one uh, sociologist, you know, to use a term that that she used, Brazilians, uh, undocumented Brazilians, are in a state of uh, illegality, but not illegitimacy. It is also a testimony. Uh, to the uh, oppressive structures that are always around us and we have been you know numbed to in different ways but they can't be numbed to they have to deal with you know kids being left home when parents are deported how do you come to terms right is a question that uh, that that they had to struggle with come to terms with the fact that a lot of folks around us even the denomination to which we belong want us to condemn these people to ask you um, about the Brazuca Baptist churches and the relationship with being described as Hispanic or Latinx. The one thing that, uh, that I think is important to recognize is that this, these are socially constructed terms, um, right? Uh, and and uh, with, with definitions that might be arbitrary to some uh, or not. Every single Hispanic or Latinx group or every single Hispanic or Latinx immigrant will prefer, uh, research shows and suggests strongly, that will prefer their national identifiers to a pan-ethnic identifier. That meaning a Venezuelan wants to be a Venezuelan before she wants to be Hispanic or Latinx. My Colombian, Mexicans, Brazilians are no different. I talk a little bit about that resistance against panethnic term that is generalized in some uh, in, in some ways, especially in first generation immigrants, no matter where they're from. But the definition there of uh, of uh, of Hispanic and, Lat- and Latinx that I was going by is people with you know heritage in Latin America, which is one of the definitions that uh, is, is is used, uh, but by the by the U.S. government, a, a, a lot of uh, a lot of Brazilians or the overwhelming number of Brazilians and brazucas uh, might resist that, uh, not only because of of, uh, of, um, of the fact that you have to, in a way, get socialized into these terms that are imposed upon you, right? Uh, but but also because uh, I think that Brazilian leaders, polit- politicians, and, and and leaders in faith communities have begun um, to uh, to see. The, the attractiveness of being included in a in the in a panethnic group that by definition they should belong even if they tend to resist uh, but just because I mean it it, it, it being counted into uh, that is a, into a group of Hispanic Latinx there is a strategic element to it you have a bigger voice is a larger community uh, and I criticize you know the the brazuca community quote unquote in general for this is that Brazilians also found out that it is socially advantageous for them uh, you know, to be Brazilians uh, more than some other countries just because for for different reasons uh, the, uh, the the US dominant culture tend to romanticize Brazil and its culture right so uh, lots of sociologists have associated that. 
uh, you know, the dominant culture. You know, we talk about Brazil, they think about soccer and samba and hard workers. And, you know, it, it's it's very different than, than the majority culture's general impression of Hispanic, uh, which is, you know, uh, very much dist- distorted both ways. That's an imagined Brazil that sanitizes all kinds of things that Brazilian culture and society has to fix. But also one that is a perception that also imposes on the Hispanic label uh, several biases that, as I say in the book, are born out of the anxieties of white supremacy. And, and uh, insofar as some Brazilian immigrants try to distance themselves, distance themselves from panethnic terms as an attempt to capitalize in the perceived social benefits of being romanticized by the majority culture, they are incorporating a version of white supremacy that ultimately it's uh, it's not only uh, evil, but is is also not as beneficial as they might think. I am so curious about your actual research process. Like, what does this take? In order for me to see if how these churches were different, uh, you know, or if they were different from churches in the home country and in the U.S., I really had to, you know, study about a century of of history and uh, in ecclesiology, uh, you know, in uh, in both Brazil and the U.S. Because I am uh, I'm trained as a historian. Uh, you know, so the U.S. part, you know, I could incorporate into my own Ph.D. and in, in, in the graduate school training. Uh, you know, for the dissertation, uh, I went back to, uh, you know, to just really study the history uh, of, um, of of the of the church. And then, uh, you know, looking at uh, migration patterns, I had to I, took, I had to take classes in uh, in ethnography and sociology. Uh, and uh, and, or, and get acquainted with uh, with research in oral history, and again, that is no uh, that is no archive that houses some of these sources. Um, so uh, I had to go to to to, you know, to visit churches uh, to get the material. Uh, and then after I did that and interviewed, you know, uh, the first round of interviews with many pastors and being in many of the meetings of the leadership. Um, I, I, I then stepped back in and looked at what were some of the major themes that emerged out of that, which I did. Um, and, and, uh, and after you know writing them down and coming up with a general uh, a general understanding, I went back to a select number of those pastors, uh, you know, to see if their interpretation aligned with mine, if they thought that. Uh, that these dynamics were being interpreted in ways that uh, that uh, they, they thought that it was fair to their communities. And we had exchanges about that. Uh, and then, of course, I revised and, uh, and, and, uh, and revealed. I did not as much as, um, uh, you know, kind of, there, there were some dynamics that they couldn't see because they were, again, you know, looking at one community, whereas I was stepping back and looking at a lot of them. Um, but, uh, but I just wanted to you know, touch base to see, uh, you know, also, uh, what, what they, they thought about, uh, that was, um, and then, so, yeah, so I did that. And then in dialogue with the research, uh, on, uh, on this, this lot of sociological research in, um, you know, about Brazilian immigrants. So that was kind of my main dialogue partners there 
as well as uh, you know looking at the literature on um, on on other Hispanic groups in which Brazilians or Brazucas are often not included, um, but also you know uh, looking at you know concepts and and histories that uh, that had been documented that could inform my understanding of uh, of this group in particular. So um, so that's kind of how this developed. My last question was just any advice you have for others who are looking at a similar theological position or framework where they're not adequately represented? Like, how do you do this work? How do you um, offer this beautiful work that you're doing? Like, how can others follow what you're doing? How do we do this? I think that the number one thing I would say, just do it in community. And 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 by doing in community, I mean um, so many people read, you know, uh, the, 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 I mean the, the, this work so many from before it was out, so that I could so that I could fix it and tweak it and maybe disagree better, uh, you know, uh, you know, clarify, you know, and uh, and I'm not, some of them, not many, but a few of them were the very people that. Uh, that were being, uh, you know, um, written about. Um, most of them were, you know, scholars in the different fields. Uh, so I had to, you know, kind of re, uh, you know, reflect on that. I asked. So my 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 section about race. I asked, you know, a sociologist of race to read it. Um, so I mean, of course, that that for you to do that, you have to have fostered already a community of people who you trust and whose scholarship you trust. Uh, it drives me to ask people who I know are better than I am, uh, and those are not hard to find, and just let them read it and just tell them honestly, I you will help me. I uh, you know uh, if you just just give me your worst criticism. I know it's not personal. I know I you know, but I just want to see your question in terms of uh, you know writing stories about groups that have they are not so represented in the literature, right? So. If you're writing the first history or the first theology or the first, you know, uh, ethnographic account of a book, how do you do it? I, I think that being humble and willing to ask others to come alongside and give feedback and take that feedback and understand that, uh, you know, when people say that you might, people who know more than you say that you might be wrong, that's not personal. They're actually a, one of the biggest blessings you can get. Thank you very much, because I, I think that um, people will be really interested in the nuance of all your answers. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. You're being very gracious, and I, and I appreciate the, the invitation, and, and the conversation has been amazing. You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Interviews are conducted by me, Sushama Austin-Connor, and Sherry Osting. Our producer is Brooke Mateka. Like what you're hearing? Subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And while you're at it, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. The Distillery is a production of the Office of Continuing Education at Princeton Theological Seminary. Find out more at thedistillery.ptsem.edu. Until next time, thanks for listening.